What does it mean to think biblically about the most pressing issues of the day? What are some of the most challenging apologetic questions that our culture puts in front of us today? Uh, what do we say about the, the recent surveys that have been released about the state of the Bible and about the state of theology? We'll answer these questions and a few more in this conversation with Sean and me in this episode of Think Biblically, a podcast of Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. Sean, let's start with this. Where does the Bible tell us to think biblically about the issues of the day? We take that as an assumption, but what are some of the key biblical texts that, that demand that we think biblically about the issues of the day, about the questions that our culture has for us in the church? In one sense, it's like a drumbeat or a golden thread through all of the scriptures. Not only does the scripture model this, but it teaches it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. So, of course, we go back to the creation story. We have, obviously, the great commandment later on, but there's this cultural mandate as well that we see early on. We could unpack that. One of the favorite passages I just go to is Jesus talks about loving God with your heart and your soul and with your mind and with your strength. In other words, love God with everything. Well, how do we love God with everything? Well, first off, we've got to recognize that God is the creator of everything. There's a great Dutch philosopher and theologian and politician, Abraham Kuyper, who said, there's not a square inch of creation out of which God does not cry out, it's mine. So if God's the creator of everything, he tells us to love him with everything. That's with our passions, but that's also with our mind. So how do we think Christianly about the different topics that we could work through? So, you know, look in the Old Testament and you have God and Isaiah saying, come, let us reason together. Let's use our minds. So it always has been and hopefully always will be a part of the Christian task, not just to do evangelism and discipleship, but to think Christianly or as our podcast says, think biblically about everything. Yeah. And when the Bible says to love God with all your heart. And all your soul, mm. those are actually figures of speech to refer to the whole person. That's right. Your mind included. I think of texts like uh, what, when, when Peter put it in 1 Peter 3, mm. to always be ready to give a defense, an apologia, which from we, we got our term apologetic, give a defense for the hope that's within you. Or Paul's goal in 2 Corinthians 10, when he said his goal of his ministry is to, to enable the culture that he's ministering and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Mm. Uh, so I think there's, there's ample biblical mandate for us to think biblically, to think clearly, and to think rationally. That's not all there is to it. Uh, sure. We have to be passionate about it. We have to love God with our emotions as well. But, uh, you know, there's a significant place for the life of the mind in what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. And we also see in the history of the church, this is what Christians have done consistently, is think about the cultural challenges, the theological challenges, the political challenges of the day through the lens of their Christian faith. Now, our society doesn't love this. Our society, which is increasingly secular, would say it's fine to have religious convictions, but keep them in your church, keep them in your home. And the Bible runs right up against that. In fact, you can even think of Deuteronomy 6.4. You know, he quotes the uh, love of the Lord God, your heart, soul, mind, your strength. Talk about these with your kids when you lie down, when you get up, when you walk along the road. In other words, make God a natural part of the rhythm of life. Everything that you do is shaped by this. So our secular culture is going to push back and say no, but as Christians, we, we can't. We bring yeah. our faith to everything. And I would suggest for our, for our secular culture to say, 
you know, he's fine to have your religious convictions, but keep them to yourself. That's the equivalent of saying you're the salt of the earth, but you got to stay in the shaker. Hmm. And you can't, you can't go out and, and have an influence. Or put your light, on, your light of the world, but keep it under a bushel basket. Did you make up uh, that salt shaker line yourself? Uh, no, I wish I had. I like that. I'd That's like pretty good. That. Hey, let me ask you a question. Apply this in your field of expertise. There was the recent uh, post-Dobbs decision uh, coming around the time of the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which is coming up actually in January of this year. You've been studying this, writing on this, debating on this for a long time. Where do you see the abortion issue Headed. I think the, the impact of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Mississippi was to essentially send the issue back to the states, which is what, what a lot of legal scholars have argued should have been done in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed and what the Supreme Court actually did when they ruled on assisted suicide in the late 1990s. They said states can prohibit it, they can allow it, but it's up to the will of the voters in that particular state. And so you'll see things on the ballot, like our Proposition 1 that's on the ballot in California now, which will legalize abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy for virtually any reason and for any method, particularly of any method of partial birth abortions in the last few weeks of pregnancy. There are virtually no limits. And even if I were pro-choice, I would have huge reservations hmm. about voting for Proposition 1 in California. And a number of states have chosen to put various restrictions on abortion rights. Uh, some, I think, will be scaled back a bit. Um, but I think it will be, legally, it will be left to the states. I think increasingly, the task for those of us who hold to more to a pro-life view and to see this as part of our biblical convictions, we'll see, I think, a greater need to pay attention to the plight of pregnant women, especially poor pregnant women with unwanted pregnancies mm. who are feeling, I think today feeling, and, and I think understandably feeling increasingly desperate. Uh, and this is where, this is where the community of God's people has to step in, in a really mm. meaningful way. And we, and we, we have got to put our money where our mouth is on the church. We can't simply say, well, this is a great day for the unborn and ignore the pregnant women who are now, who are now in various stages of distress because they may live in a state where the right to end their pregnancy is more limited. Uh, now, you've been a big supporter, myself included, of pregnancy resource centers. So you're not saying the church hasn't done this at least no. decently well. We, we, I think we, yeah, there are hundreds and hundreds of crisis pregnancy centers around the country with free medical care and the equivalent of social workers to walk through a pregnancy with a person to enable a woman to put a baby up for mm -hmm. adoption. Uh, I think it's important that we recognize that it, just because a woman's pregnant it doesn't commit her to raising the child. There are mm -hmm. lots of families. The, the demand for adoptable newborn children far, far, far exceeds the supply today. Uh, and part of the reason for that is the you know, 900,000 or so abortions that are performed annually mm -hmm. in the U.S. every year. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, the, that's where I think the the focus of ministry is going to shift into more of an emphasis on how do we care for these women who I think we are obligated to care for uh, and to take good care of them. Fair enough. Good. So, our, so in other words, the pro-life movement must make an argument better than we ever have before, an apologetic, a defense, think Christianly, and care for the unborn. It's both. 
That's, that's right. essentially what we have to do. So yeah. this is pushed it back to the states, but in many ways, I've said this, and I think you have as well, the abortion issue has just begun, right? Right. The so debate. the argument, yeah. So is the argument's been pushed back to the states too, mm. and it's, it's been much more on a grassroots level. Let's shift to another ethical issue that you've you told me when I was taking a class from you. Uh, this is back early two thousands, the MA Phil program. I asked you what's the toughest ethical issue to face, and you said it's end of life issues, euthanasia assisted suicide. Where do you see issues of the legalization of assisted suicide heading? I think short term, gradually gaining more and more momentum. And it's interesting how the argument in favor of assisted suicide has changed over the years. It used to be when this first got started in the early 90s or so, late 80s, early 90s, the argument was all about mercy to a suffering patient. Okay. That argument you don't hear much anymore. And the reason for that is because the science of palliative care has gotten so much better today than it's ever been. And access to adequate pain control at the end of life has increased exponentially than when we began this discussion 25, 30 years ago. I've heard physicians tell me repeatedly that there is, there's virtually no pain for a dying patient that cannot be adequately controlled. Wow. You know, short, you know with, without a need to, to end their lives. Mm. Uh, now, doing that in some cases can be really challenging and we, requires a specialist to do that. And there are some places in the country that have lesser access to this than others. Sure. But I think the more, the more we get access to this kind of first-rate pain control, the demand, I think, for assisted suicide is going to decrease. In fact, that's why the argument has changed from mercy to autonomy. Mm. And it's now sort of what your dad was talking about, about subjectivity, that the argument is that it's my life. Uh, if I want to off myself, that's nobody's business but my own. Mm. But for a follower of Christ, that, that really is God's business as well. Mm. Uh, because the Bible's really clear that we are not our own. You know, our bodies don't mm. ultimately belong to us. They belong to God. We've been bought with a price, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. And therefore, we're to honor God with our bodies, I think particularly in the way we go home to meet him at the end of our lives. Mm. And we spend a lot of our time uh, modeling how to live well. I think there's also a place for people who are in the last stages of life to model dying well. Um, and to recognize that, you know, that assisted suicide robs family members of ushering their loved ones right up to the doorstep of eternity. And we had this privilege with my dad. Uh, hmm. It was such a privilege to see him right before he died to cross his arms and look up because he knew where he was going. Wow. Just as he took his last breath. Wow. And assisted suicide robs us of those sacred moments. Hmm. Um, so I think I'll give you an example in the state of Oregon. Uh, that was the first state in the United States to legalize assisted suicide. They've had far fewer participants in this than they envisioned. And the reason for that is because palliative care, pain control, hospice care is so well established in the state of Oregon that the demand for assisted suicide has, gone, has been far less than what they'd anticipated. Because what people want at the end of life is some semblance of control mm. and for their pain to be controlled. And funny thing, surprise, surprise, when a person's pain is controlled, 
they actually want to live. Wow. You know, they don't want to die. What they don't, what they don't want is to die in unrelievable pain. And that's mm. in, increasingly uh, just simply not the case today in lots of places around the country. So how concerned are you in the States? Because there's been some recent cases in Canada that have raised some red flags of concern that the argument was made early on, what we're saying is voluntary will become involuntary. What was an immediate uh, death sense, you're gonna die naturally within six months, will become not so much immediate. That you'll become a burden to those and other people will start making decisions. And if I'm not mistaken, soon in Canada, they are meeting to talk about euthanizing even kids and potentially babies, if I'm not mistaken. But it has moved that direction. In, Canada yeah. aside, do you have concern that the U.S. Yeah, is going to head that direction? Do you have, think there's certain defenses no, built I have, in? No, I have big concerns about that. And that's a, that's a slippery slope that we definitely don't want to go down. For example, in the Netherlands today, uh, the age of eligibility for assisted suicide is 12 with the child himself or herself giving consent to that. That and the right to end a mm. pregnancy, uh, those are the only two medical procedures that a child can give consent for on their own without the parents being involved. Those are the only two things. And here's why, mm. uh, here's why that voluntary assistance or voluntary euthanasia will slide invariably toward non-voluntary euthanasia. Reason for that is because nobody has access to those private conversations between family members where we could sort of, you know, gently but persistently twist our 95 year old mother's arm that mm. she needs to have assisted suicide done. Not because she's tired of living, but because we're tired of her living and being a burden on us. And because the state is tired of her living and being a financial burden. You know, you may not be aware, but fully 50% of all of the, all the money you will spend on your health care occurs in the last 12 months of your life, statistically, when wow. it does you the least amount of good. And, <laughs> and I had, a, I had a, a colleague, not a, a, a state university colleague, tell me, she said, she said the reason assisted suicide is, will always be popular is because there's nothing cheaper than dead. Wow. So on that happy thought... Um, but I think the reason is because nobody has access to those private conversations. And, and you and I could coerce our 95-year-old mother to do assisted suicide under compulsion, non-voluntarily, and nobody will ever know that we've mm -hmm. coerced her into doing that. Mm -hmm. And so any law that says assisted suicide has to always be completely voluntary is also completely unenforceable. Because no, nobody, that's, those are private conversations. How do you prove that? Yeah. You, don't, you don't. You don't even know that, 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 that it went on. Hmm. That's a huge, huge problem. What bioethics issues do you see coming in the future? And I ask because I think one of the things we've seen with the gender issue is this idea that I, I should not be <clears throat> limited by my body, whether it comes to the way I identify and then I think, well, what's going to follow after that? You look at like artificial intelligence and some of these issues is a desire to not be limited by the body right. 
in even further ways. Is that where biotechnology is headed? I think in general, yes, but I think there's a more pressing issue that's, that's with us right now today. And I used to, I, t- I told my philosophy students years ago that designer children will probably never mm. be on the table in our lifetime. Mm. And I was wrong because five years ago, we, we, we figured out, like scientists at UC Berkeley figured out how to do, essentially take scissors and paste to your genetic code to where you can snip out a defective gene and replace it with a corrected one, with, I mean, literally with a genetic pair of scissors. And what that does is enables us to, to cure genetic disease once and for all. And it's a trait that's passed on to succeeding generations. Mm. What that also enables us to do is to select <laughs> other traits that don't have anything to do with disease. Wow. And enable us to literally design our children in the laboratory today to have all sorts of specifications that we want, which I think undermines the notion of children being a gift mm. from God that we receive open-handedly and without specifications. Uh, and that's, you know, we already, we already, it's been in practice for probably 10 years, 15 years now. We can choose the, the sex of our child fairly reliably. Um, mm. And people wonder, is that necessarily a good thing? I'm not so sure it is uh, because the places around the world where it's been widely practiced has been a disastrous demographic consequence because you have way mm. more boys than girls. Mm. And the, the gender imbalance is profound in some parts of the developing world that went whole, whole speed ahead with this. Which can contribute to things like sexual trafficking, et cetera, when there's a massive imbalance yeah, between think, men and women. You would think if, if women were in short supply, their value would go up. Mm. But in reality, their value has been cheapened. And they become more victims of human trafficking than ever before in our history. Okay? So my, my turn f- put some oh, questions yeah, to okay. you. Oh, yeah, okay. I thought you were just... Okay. I, I was on a roll here, but... Uh, Let's do uh, it. But, you know, one of the things I've appreciated, Sean, about watching you work, uh, not only with, with this podcast, but some of the other things that you do, you may not be aware, Sean has a YouTube channel that has over 100,000 subscribers to it. Uh, and it's just going like gangbusters. Uh, and he'll, he'll tell you in just a minute how you can get access to that. Um, and, but, hey, I can do that. I can shamelessly self-promote you. It's okay. But you do a lot with social media. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, am totally old school, and I do virtually nothing on social media. And my kids think I'm absolutely nuts for not doing anything on social media. How have you learned to use social media wisely and in a manner that exhibits sort of Christ-like humility and gentleness, which is definitely not the norm? Well, let me just say my social media use doesn't always reflect that. There's a lot of tweets I've had to delete. There's a couple of videos I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take that down. So I'd honestly say a lot of that comes from trial and error, making mistakes, owning it, and realizing, you know what? I was hungry when I sent that tweet. I was angry when I (laughs) sent that tweet, whatever it is. So if you're going to be on social media, you're going to make mistakes. The question is, are you going to own it and are you going to move on? I just try to ask myself a few questions. What's the purpose of social media? 
What's the end goal for a Christian to use this tool? It's not just to get followers and subscribers. It's not to make money. I want to either encourage Christians in their faith or challenge non-Christians to consider the Christian faith. That's my goal. So I've thought through what mediums do I use? Why do I use them? What's my goal? What's my lane? And then that helps to me weed out certain things that don't fit that lane. The other thing I often ask with social media is how are things going to land? I mean, you and I did a whole show on this, but like when you look at how Christians comment on social media, it's the exception to find somebody who comments well and thoughtfully because we're thinking about, I just want to win the argument. I want to prove this person wrong rather than how is this going to land? Is this honoring to the Lord? Is this a loving thing to post? I'm not going to sit here and pretend I've always done that. I'm just telling you the principles that I try to do because sometimes social media pulls out the worst in us. But I just look at it and I say it's a tool to advance the gospel. It's a tool to minister to people. And I wrote a whole blog on how would Jesus comment on social media. And I really tried to think through if he used social media, how would he comment? I think he'd tell stories. I think he'd ask a lot more questions than make statements. I think he wouldn't just gauge people by the amount of followers they had. He clearly didn't use that metric to value people, but would reach out to people who don't have a big following. That's just the way I look at this. So I would love Christians to think through what does it mean to use social media in a Christian fashion that sets us apart from the audience. When I look at how a lot of Christians use social media, I mean, you and I, even on, on this podcast, if we wanted to just grow and have more followers, there's a way we could manipulate this, say shocking things, have on certain guests. But I feel like we would compromise our integrity before the Lord in doing so. And when it's all said and done, that's all I have, social media or not, right. is my integrity, and I really don't want to compromise that. So on, on your YouTube channel, just <clears throat> for example, what, are, what, are, what would you say are the most challenging apologetic questions that you've had to answer? On my YouTube channel. Because uh, you get, you have a very interesting following on that channel. You I get a lot of people from a lot following. of different, super interesting backgrounds. I, gosh. So I think in general, the hardest question to answer anywhere are the problems of evil and suffering. And that manifests itself in different ways. And I think the reason it's so hard is it's not just an intellectual question. It's personal. We've experienced evil. We've experienced pain. We suffered. And so how do you answer somebody intellectually, but existentially? So that's probably the broad question. So conversations I've had, a lot of conversations about race. A lot at the heart of that is people have been mistreated. They've been hurt and they've suffered. Why would God allow this? Issues like LGBTQ at the heart of a lot of LGBTQ is why do I suffer? Did God make me this way? Am I going to love somebody and be loved back? These are versions of the problem of evil. So I think lurking behind most of the questions are the seeming absence of God, suffering in the world okay. that is hard for people, I Christians know, and non-Christians. Yeah. I know on your, on your channel, you also had a conversation with a, a fairly well-known atheist, the writer for the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, tell, tell our group about that conversation. Yeah, this is really fun. In fact, I just emailed him 
this week and asked him if he'd come back on and do a live Q&A. What's interesting about this is this fellow's name is Adam Davidson. He's written for The New Yorker. He's written for uh, Slate Magazine, MSNBC, I think maybe The New York Times, done some really popular episodes on This American Life, and described himself to me, this was his terminology, an atheist New York media elite. (laughs) That's how he described himself. This is an example. He actually reached out to me. Usually I'm reaching out, trying to get people to come on. He reached out to me and he said, hey, I've been following your channel for a while. I watch almost all of your stuff. And I thought, wow, you never know who's watching. I, if you're open to it, I'd love to have a conversation. Well, I played it off for a while because I thought, I just have a certain view of the media, right or wrong. I've been set up. I've been misquoted. Finally, I was like, I'm going to look into this guy's stuff and thought, wow, he's not only super thoughtful, I think he's really sincere. So I asked him, I said, can I just bring on my channel and ask you about your life, spiritually, how you view Christians? He agreed. And I'll tell you one thing that stood out to me is I asked him, how many evangelical Christians do you know? Growing up, the answer was none. He said, Sean, 40% of the men that I knew were gay. 40%. So Christians were people depicted in the media. He's like, sometimes a Christian would try to give me a track, but Christians were the enemies. They were stealing our rights. Mm -hmm. We can at least understand if that's somebody's experience, why they would view us at Biola and the evangelical world through that lens. Great conversation. Then I followed up and I said, hey, you want to flip the script? Now you can just, why don't, what do you think about emailing me? Or not emailing me, about interviewing me. It was actually originally his idea. And he was just asking me questions about my family. At one point, he was so interesting. He, he's like, I don't understand the idea of God. Can you explain it to me? I was like, wow, what a fascinating thing. That one got over 100,000 views, which tells me people are hungry for conversations like that. When I started on YouTube, a a few YouTubers who have bigger channels than I do, they're like, like, Sean, you try to be conversational and kind with people. It's not going to work on YouTube. You need to be controversial, got to be edgy. And I think I could create a bigger following. There's plenty of shocking things I could say and get a big following, but they're wrong. There's a lot of people who want thoughtful conversation. So he's coming back on soon. We're just going to do a live Q&A together. I think I'm going to call it an atheist journalist and a Christian professor. And I don't even know what people are going to ask, but it's cool. There's a lot of people willing to engage like that. If we reach out. And if, and if we're gentle, kind and caring about them and care care about their lives as well as the arguments that they make back and forth. And I'll tell you, it was super interesting. You can go listen to it and make up your own mind, but I think it was pretty clear that I would not be welcome in a lot of circles in <laughs> his kid's private school wouldn't be okay to come and speak there. Yeah. Uh, he's like, uh, we would like you as a friend, but professionally wouldn't really be yeah. welcome. Like he just kind of owned that. And we're often told the right is closed minded, not willing to engage. And he's yeah. like, yeah, it would, it was just so interesting when we just step outside of our comfort zone, listen to people, ask them their experiences, find common ground. One of my favorite conversations. And I think we're going to have many more. That's great. Too, too much fun you're having on that channel. I am. Hey, one last question. Um, where, where, where do you think the think that biblically podcast is headed in the future? What are some of the things that you're looking forward to? Um, what, what are we, what are we envisioning for future episodes? 
You should tell me because I'd kind of like to know this myself. Yeah, I don't know that we've talked this through, which is interesting, but so many people are looking for like that breakthrough video that goes viral, podcast that goes viral, YouTube video. And it was William Lane Craig, who's a research professor here, uh, helped start, be a part of the MA Phil program that we had, going back, huge influence in my life. He goes, "I I look at my life like the tortoise, just each day plug away and try to advance the ball and be faithful. You look back over five years, five decades, and you've made a significant difference. So I don't, it's not like in the next six months, there's these mega incredible breakthrough things. I hope we're going to continue to up our game and improve and learn and grow. But I hope we're sitting here in five years and we go, you know what? We've had good content. We've been faithful to what God calls us to. We've innovated and maybe if the numbers grow, who knows where it would be. When it's all said and done, numbers are cool. But when I look at that number, it's like 2.6 million. I'm like, wow, I want to get an email from a father who says, you know, Sean, each week we listen to the Think Biblically podcast, my son and I, yeah. we get on the phone and we talk about it. That means more to me than 100,000 downloads of somebody I don't know. Yeah. It really does. So yeah. I just hope we keep learning and keep better and stay faithful to this as long as God allows us to do it, I'd be pleased. Well, I got to tell you, you know, the last five years have been such a treat for me just to work work together with you. It's been such a joy to to combine our gifts and our experience Mm. and our different fields uh, into something that, you know, we think is going to last for a while. We're we're certainly hopeful that it will by by the grace of God. Well, I got to tell you, it was Scott's idea, not mine. So thanks for asking me to be a partner on this. I pinch myself oh. every time we go in. And by the way, we go in and we'll record. It's about six now. When we first started, we were doing them every 45 minutes. We would stop. We'd be on and we'd do eight a day. And at the end of the day, we're looking at each other like spent. Like, why we, are we, we became killing ourselves? About halfway through. <laughs> what are we doing? Someone's five minutes late on the call. It messes up the whole day. Now we can do on the hour about six, maybe seven at most a day. And now we've been filming them, which is cool, putting them online, just trying to reach a new audience. We have a Biola student. Shout out, Amaya, if you're out there. I know you're here tonight. She's just helping us doing some creative stuff online. So I think we're, you know, because we've had some success, it's more and more of the university's attention uh, starts growing, which I think is great and positive. But I just want to stay the course to what we're doing. I think we found something that works. Well, if anything, I think the numbers tell us that. Mm. And grateful for our audience, um, you know, here in person tonight, also live streaming. Um, It's just been so fun to get a chance to do this with you over these last five years. Amen to that. Well, this has been an episode of Think Biblically, a podcast from Tablet School of Theology here at Biola University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share it with a friend, encourage them to subscribe, and remember... Think biblically about everything.